0: The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.
1: Okay, we're reading in Exodus 20, um, verses 1 through 21. If you're following along in the Bible under your seat, it's page 42. Um, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Out of the house of slavery you shall have no other gods before me you shall not make yourself make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth you shall not bow down to them or serve them for I the Lord I the Lord your god am a jealous god visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me who is um, within your gates for in 6 days the lord made heaven and earth the the sea and all that is in them and rested on the 7th day therefore the lord blessed the sabbath day and made it holy honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the lord your god has given you you shall not murder you shall not commit adultery you shall not steal you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is the reading of God's word.
0: Let's pray, and we'll get rolling. Lord, I thank you for uh, your word this morning. I thank you for your people. I thank you for uh, spring that's coming, even Uh, What sleep that I had last night, losing an hour, and all of us uh, God, probably a little bit grumpy because of that. Uh, Father, as we gather here in your presence and with your people, I pray that you would uh, show up in your spirit and power, that we would hear from your word, that you you would uh, show us yourself, that you would show us who we really are through that, and that you would uh, cause us, our worship to you, to be greater and deeper and better and and uh, truer because of that. Father, uh, I, I don't come in any confidence in myself, but in full confidence of your word, pray you'd help us to be faithful to that this morning. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. So we're working our way through Exodus still. It's exciting, huh? We only have a, a little, little while left, really. Uh, next two weeks, we're going to be, uh, man, next week is already Palm Sunday, and then the week after that is Easter, so that's really exciting. We won't be in Exodus the next two weeks, and then we are only, uh, only have a, a little bit left after that. So uh, anyway, I've had fun. I hope you've been enjoying it as well. Uh, we're, we're at really the heart of the whole story right now. Last week, we were in chapter 19, and that's where God's people have been, he has delivered them out of the land of Egypt. You guys may remember it from uh, Sunday school class. If you grew up in church or you may have seen a movie or uh, maybe you've been following along with this, he delivers them out of Egypt, which is the most powerful nation on the face of the earth, by his mighty hand. Uh, This people who had nothing, they were just slaves, he leads them out. He leads them out of Egypt by 10 amazing plagues. They get progressively worse until Egypt finally says, you've got to get out of here. And then the people get out of there and God leads them by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And he leads them directly to, as they leave Egypt, right to the brink of the Red Sea, which is the wrong way to go, quite frankly, if you're looking at a map. But God leads them that way because he's gonna do something mighty. He's gonna deliver his people by one last exclamation point. They're trapped as the Egyptian army comes out because they had second thoughts about letting their free labor go, and so they come and they pin them against the Red Sea. Then God opens up the Red Sea, and the Israelites walk through on dry land, and then as the Egyptian army is pursuing them, he folds the water back down and destroys Pharaoh's army that was pursuing them in one fell swoop, and the people have been delivered. But now, just like you and me, if, you, if you're a believer in Christ, uh, I'm pretty sure. I don't know all of you uh, super well. Most of you I know fairly enough well to know that you guys aren't perfect any more than I am. We're, grown, we're uh, prone to complain and grumble. And as soon as the people are ejected out of Egypt, Egypt by God's mighty hand, delivered through the Red Sea, they get on the other side. They start complaining because they're hungry. I can understand. I get very grumpy when I get hungry as well. Usually uh, after church on Sundays, we're tearing down and we're doing all the stuff that we have to do. And you, you know, it's Dale and I who are usually here, just doing the last like final couple little things. I have a tendency to get a little grumpy because I'm hungry at the point. I've had eaten since like five five thirty in the morning, and I I have a tendency to get a little grumpy at that point. And they get grumpy. They grumble because God because they're hungry. And God provides manna from heaven, and then whenever they get thirsty, He provides water in the middle of the desert from a rock. And then He calls them to come to Mount Sinai because He wants to meet with them. And last week we were in chapter 19 where He meets with them. And He's going to disclose to them this ragtag group of slaves who, even before they went to Egypt, were just a, just a little tribe, a little, a little tribe of shepherds in the middle of the wilderness. Now they're a bunch of people, but they're not a, a people yet. They're people, but they're not a people yet. And he gathers them around the mountain and he shakes the mountain and the mountain quakes. The mountain seems to be on fire, it's covered in smoke. And then it looks like the, the mountain itself is billowing fire from the ground. And God speaks to them from the mountain. He's telling them, I am the one and only true God, I am holy. And though I am meeting with you, I need you to know this before we move any further. I am the one true and only God. Now, we get to this passage, Exodus 20, and uh, even though we're here in this room and all from different backgrounds, some of us grew up in church, some of us didn't grow up in church, this is gonna be at least somewhat recognizable to, to us, right? And And frankly, if we're kind of honest and real with each other and ourselves when we heard the passage read this morning there's probably a little bit of an inward groan in a lot of our hearts and minds like oh great this is a sermon on the Ten Commandments because if you are from a not from a church background, then or uh, or you aren't a believer, then the Ten Commandments probably seems like a really restrictive set of rules. It's kind of antiquated. It's from a lost era. Uh, a, a set of rules that stubborn Christians like still want to have up in like courtrooms and public spaces and have like a uh, you know ha- have lawsuits surrounding them. Or if you are a Christian or you're from a church background, then uh, you you hear that we're gonna have a sermon on the 10 commandments and that's usually rates in the sort of the bottom three or four or five set of sermons that you don't want to hear. Number one being evangelism. We don't want to hear a sermon about that. Number two being a, a sermon about prayer and somewhere in there, but man, 10 commandments are right in there in the midst. We don't really want to hear about that. And that's because it's a set of rules or commands or laws that all of us have broken. Uh, All of us know that we probably will break them in the future. And some of us may be breaking them at this very minute. And then there's the whole thing about what do we do with the Ten Commandments? Uh, Because there's different ways to deal with the law. Exodus 20, which is the passage we're in now, through the next four chapters after that, the Exodus 24, is God giving his first set of laws to his people, where he's making this people into a people. And so what do we do with the law? What do we do with the Ten Commandments? And some of us just ignore it, whether we're Christians or non-Christians, we ignore it. We ignore them because we think they're sort of antiquated and they're old school, and they're not really applicable now. Or we're Christians and we think, well, man, we've been saved by Christ and he's forgiven of, of our sins. And so I don't really know what to do with the commandments, with the law. And some of us don't ignore it. Some of us champion it. Man, we're, we're, we're the law. Well, you, you know who you are. You're the law keepers, right? Here's how to tell the difference between those of us in this room. If I were to break out a bunch of board games at this very moment and split this up into tables, it becomes very clear from the very beginning of who's sitting around the table, who's the law keepers and who's the law breakers. <laughs> the law keepers want to, read the, want to read the rules first. You know, they spend like the first 30 minutes setting up the rules of the game to make sure we're all on the same page no, no, you do not, you know, the, all special, the special little rules that each of us have monopoly, no, that is not the way it is played. <laughs> exactly. Free parking, what happens there? Uh, do you have to go around once before you buy a, buy a property? All the special little rules, that's gonna be taken care of. And then the law breakers, they're the ones that kind of make it up as they go along as the game progresses. Now, I, I have, my, my family, I, I love the game of risk. I haven't played it a long time because like I have a life now, but you know, I I used to love the game of risk and I I played it all the time and I played it one time, one time with my family and they told me they will never, ever play the game of risk with me again. That's because I decided in the middle of it that I was going to make a treaty. I think that's okay in the game of risk. I was going to make a treaty with somebody else and I made a treaty. We executed the treaty. We took everybody else off the board and then I won. And they said, we will never, they said it was too cut though. They'll never ever play risk with me again. Some of us are rule keepers. Some of us are rule breakers. Some of us ignore the rules. Some of us keep the rules. We kind of know who we are in the deal, right? But most of us, with the rules that God is giving us here, the Ten Commandments, most of us misuse them one way or the other. We either ignore them, which they're not meant to be ignored, or we misuse them. We misuse them because we think that it's a rule that I can keep and I'm, or, and, or I'm going to be the police for other people to keep them as well. We're going to look at the passage this morning. We're going to see four reasons the law was given and it is good. Four reasons the law is given, was given, and is given, and it is good. You're going to leave here hopefully happy and encouraged this morning on this beautiful early spring morning, the first Sunday of. Daylight savings time. It's going to be the need for the law we're going to look at, the beauty of the law, the work of the law, and the result of the law. If you're keeping notes, if you're that type of person, the need for the law, and you're going to keep me accountable, I know who you are. The beauty of the law, the work of the law, and the results of the law. First of all, the need for the law. See, as I mentioned before, God has called these people to be his people, but they're just kind of a people right now. They're loosely associated to each other by the fact that they share a common ancestor. They're all Israelites because Abraham was their great, 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 great grandfather. And everybody there is somehow cousins once removed, just like I grew up in Conway. It's like I grew up in Conway. Somehow we're all related at some point. We share something in common. But God is calling them to be a people, not just to be a people, but to be his people. And he starts that out, by establishing the fact that he is alone God and he is holy. We covered that last week he is other, he is different, he is above. There is no one like him or comparable to him. And if he's going to be a holy God and these people are going to be his people, then they have to be a holy people. At its basis when we talk about holiness like I don't know what you picture when you when I say holy. Maybe you picture a minister, maybe you picture your grandmother, maybe you picture, you don't even know what you picture. But holiness at its very basis means to be set apart. That's what it means when we say God is holy, it means he is set apart or he is other than us. And if God is calling us his people or the people at this time as well to be a holy people, it means they're called to be a set apart, a set out people. You see, that's what God has been doing ever since the beginning or at least since the the downfall at the fall in the in the garden. This whole creation seemed to go downhill. He's been calling a people apart out of the this sinful, broken world, this sinful, broken system that you and I live in to be his people. He's moving us, you and me, as believers, as Christians, from just being people to being a people to be his. People, his special set apart people. He's making these Israelites, as he is making you and I, into a new kind of people, a new kind of society. And it's a new kind of people and a new kind of society because he is at the center. If God is at the center of this people, this Israelites, and if he is at the center of you and me as this church, as a church at large across the world, then we are going to be different. We're going to be radically different than anything that had been seen before because we have been gathered around him. That central organizing fact changes everything. If God is at the center, if God is calling this people, these Israelites, to be his people, for him to be at the center and for them to be gathered around him, for them to be his people, then it affects every layer of society. It affects, for you and my, I individually, for you and me individually, it affects every layer of our personality and our life. Every layer. Think about the simplicity of the Ten Commandments. Martin Luther, who was an awesome guy, if you're not familiar with him, Martin Luther, uh, who's way smarter than I am, he said, "Like, just think about this, God boiled down his commandments to be a people to Ten Commandments. That's pretty good. That's very brief. It's very simple. Yet think about the breadth that is covered here in the Ten Commandments. First of all, you shall know of the gods before me, You should not make of yourself a carved image and worship it. Verse 7, you should not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So these first three commandments have to do with our relationship with God vertically between us and God. But then look at the breadth after that. First of all, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. He's talking about our life and our work, our pattern of life and work and rest. Honor your father and your mother, that your verse 12, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving is giving you. He's talking about our family and our family life. You should not murder. I mean, that seems like an obvious one, but he's talking about the sanctity of life. That the those who are powerful don't get to take advantage of those who are weaker by exerting power and influence on it. It's not Darwinism, where the strongest survive. Verse fourteen: You should not commit adultery. He's talking about our marriages and our sex lives. Verse fifteen: You should not steal. You should not bear false witness against your neighbor. In verse sixteen, that having to do with our relationships with each other, our possessions, and what is right. Uh, what is right, and then uh, what is then dealing with integrity. In verse sixteen, you should not covet your neighbor's house or his wife or his servants or his ox or donkey. That includes his car or. Uh, his uh, Corvette or his house or his waterfall is in his backyard. My neighbor has a beautiful, like, water feature in his backyard. It's like his, his yard looks amazing. I'm not supposed to cover covered that. It's a breadth, and even in the simplicity, it's a breadth of depth that it covers. They reach from very personal actions between me and God to our interpersonal relationships. Even the things that are difficult to measure externally, how do we measure each other or even in my own heart, whether I'm coveting my neighbor's wife? Like I can tell, like if I murdered somebody or if you murdered somebody, if I'm observing you carefully, right? That's an easy one to get. Stealing is easy. That's pretty simple. False witness. Like you you can catch somebody and lie, but how do you know if you or somebody around you is coveting? It has to do with, it goes even deeper than our actions, our external actions. It goes directly to the heart. The law isn't just to lay out rules of what to do and not to do. They establish a different way of viewing life. They establish a new people. That's why we needed the law. That's why the Israelites needed the law. Because it was establishing a new people. but then look at the beauty of the law. Have you thought of the Ten Commandments as beautiful? Think of what it meant to the Israelites. They were slaves, a collection of tribes, of herders, and now they're out on their own in the middle of the desert, and God's saying he's gonna deliver, he's gonna put them into the land that he's promised them, and they're gonna be his people, and they're gonna be a self-governing nation. How do you take a, a we see it all across the all across the world right now right in the Middle East we see it right now as as a nation that's not used to ruling itself a people that's not used to ruling itself all of a sudden are freed from a dictator how do they rule themselves we're not usually good at it how they're going to survive much less how are they going to flourish as a nation on their own But what God does for them here in the Ten Commandments and in the law is He lays out a way of life. This is important. He lays out a code of living that's in accordance with the way the world was meant to be. The law is beautiful because they show us, number one, what God is like. What does He value? What is important to Him? but it's also important and beautiful because it shows us what this world was meant to be and what it will be again. What would life be like for you and for me and our society if people didn't steal, if people didn't murder, if, people didn't weren't, if their hearts weren't filled with hate and coveting for their neighbors and the people around them. Think of how free your life would be if you could go to the beach. This, happen, this is why I share this, because it happens to me. I go to the ocean, and the ocean's beautiful, and there's the seagulls and the sun and the waves, and you know, it's awesome and amazing. But I'll be honest with you. What happens in my heart is I turn around and I look at all those beautiful houses that are sitting right on the ocean front, looking out, and I'm thinking about how they wake up in the morning and they see the sunrise over the ocean, And they get to sit out on their deck in the evening and enjoy it. And all of a sudden, what once was beautiful and sweet and amazing to me, all of a sudden is sour because I think about, man, I wish I had a house that was on the ocean. Think about how amazing your life would be and freeing it would be if your heart wasn't filled with covetousness and jealousy for the people who are around you that dress nicer, drive nicer cars, live in a better house, live in a better city, have a better job, have a, let's just be honest, a more beautiful spouse or boyfriend or better kids or a better education. God's beautiful law invites us to imagine what a life in society would look like if it was in line with these 10 simple rules. But then think about it. It sets a high bar, the Ten Commandments, and a low bar at the same time. Right? It sets a, it sets a really low bar, first of all, because let's just acknowledge this. Like, the Ten Commandments are the perfect law that God has given us, and they would be, life would be beautiful if we all kept it. But, but let's just be honest. These aren't rocket scientists kind of things here. The, the Ten Commandments aren't like Mother Teresa level life. It's just sort of basic, like, Mind your own business, be a good citizen, be a good husband, be a good wife, be a decent employee or employer kind of laws. It's very simple. Like to set a bar saying, do not commit murder and do not steal and do not commit adultery is a pretty low bar. It's sort of like the basis of what we need as a society to be sustainable. But yet it also sets a high bar. They set a high bar in that that implicates all of us. As as we read these, in the scripture reading when Candace read them, and then when I just ran over them just now, every single one of us are implicated. As they were read, every one of us has this sort of mental checklist that we're going down, like, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay. Uh, Haven't done that for a while. I'm doing that right now. Our conscience yells out in our minds if we let it, as we read them as they're read for us. I have not kept these. They're pretty simple. It's not out of order. It seems like the basis of a society, but I have not kept them. Which leads us to the next purpose of the law: the work. Of the law, the work of the law. Perhaps the greatest narrative of life in our age is that you should do whatever seems best for you, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. That's the that's the one of maybe the greatest narrative of life in our society. Living in America in the early 21st century is probably the very basis basic narrative that we have. And what it means is that each of us is to act as a personal judge in our own courtroom, deciding what is right and wrong for us. Now, if you've grown up in church or been a Christian for very long, then you would say, yes, that is true. That's what society thinks, but that's not what I think and how I feel. But no matter how, whether you grew up in church not whether you've been a Christian a long time or you haven't been, that narrative has crept into all of our ways of thinking. It's tunneled deeper into us than even our, our very values, our, our very sense of right and wrong. Because think about, just think about your life and just be honest for a moment. Most of us follow along the rules of work and relationships the the laws of the lands, even morality, as long as it seems good to us or comfortable to us or makes sense to us or is wise to us. But at any given moment, when it crosses our sense of wisdom, our sense of, of right, our sense of good, most of us decide to go our own way. We may call it fudging the lines. We may call it, you know, acting within sort of the gray areas. But most of us kind of make up the rules as we go along. We keep the big ones. There's certain ones that each of us have. They're sort of the big ones. It may be big, like we see them in Scripture, or it just may be big in our own heart. Like, this is important to me. But then we fudge on the others. That's often a point of contention between spouses. That what you consider important They don't consider so important, and what they consider important, you don't consider so important. And the fudgy lines, like the the gray lines, the blurry lines, they seem to intersect with each other, and that causes conflict between each other. We pick and we choose what we keep and what we don't keep, what we obey and what we don't obey. We're all running around doing our own things. We practically, so that's not in our mind, but practically, we practically live life as if it were a play. And I'm the primary actor and I'm the director. So I'm the star of the show and I'm the one that gets to call the shots and everybody else around me is either a supporting actor or they're my audience. That is until we run against something hard and concrete, like a holy God who says he alone is God and is a jealous God and he will have no others compete with him. Not any false God and not you or me. And then he gives us his law. It's something that doesn't budge when we shove it. It's a set of truths that's so deep that they can't be denied, a set of commands that are clean and compelling to us. At the same time that we feel the conviction of them, we also see the beauty that would be if we could keep them behind that uncomfortable pricking of our conscience. You know what I'm talking about. It's a concept that, of a life that we wish were true. In my heart, I wish I was in alignment alignment with his rules and his laws. And I wish this world was in line with his rules and his law. And that's why Calvin said that the The law acts as a mirror. Because when we hear these read and we study them and we think about them, what happens is it it acts as a mirror and then it shows me who I really am. Because it's a hard, fast set of rules that I don't get to make up as I go along. We all have our sort of inner code of rules, but this is a hard, set, fast set of rules that never changes. But the mirror is not like a passive mirror. Like I walk up to a mirror and I look, I try not to, but I walk up to a mirror and I look at and I see myself. And I just see myself. It's a passive mirror. But the, the, the mirror of the law is an, act, is an active mirror. And that it shows me who I really am at the same time that it shows me what I could be, and what I should be at the same time. And it's that distance between who I am and who I could be and who I should be that I see is a vast gulf. And here's the problem that you and I face at that moment where we see ourselves in that active mirror of the law. I can either say I'm far away and I I have no idea what to do, or I buckle down, I'm that kind of guy or that kind of gal who says, I'm going to buckle down and I'm going to set my resolutions and I'm going to chase what I should be. Until you get tired of chasing and you realize, I just can't make myself into that thing. I can't make myself into that person. That's because the law is not about behavior modification. It was never meant for that. The law was never meant for us to see the read the Ten Commandments and say, okay, I'm good on commandments, you know, what, four, five, and six, so I'm fudgy on seven and eight, and I'm good on nine and ten. And so I need to do better at the ones that I'm not good at. Like, like it's sort of like you're improving your golf game. Now, I'm not good at putting, so I need to get better at putting. The the, the, the reason the law was given was that so it would expose to us the depth of sin in my heart and my incredible need for a savior. It would show me that I cannot keep it and there's no possible way I ever will. Romans 7, 7 Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known my sin. For what I, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. You ever experienced that? Sort of like you decide to fast one day and all of a sudden like food has never looked so good. You've never been so hungry. It's not even 10 o'clock in the morning. How how could I ever make it to lunch? How how did I forget how amazing food was? Why would I ever make this stupid decision to fast today? That's what the law does to us. And as soon as you try to chase that one or two or three or more areas that you're weak in, the gulf becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Tim Keller says, unless you have the law of God, unless you understand the law of God, you'll never understand how your heart really works. You'll never understand what's really going on in here. You'll never understand really what makes you tick without the law. Because it exposes that gulf between who we should be and could be and who we are. That's the work that the law is meant to do in our heart. But then lastly, the result of the law. The result of the law. Here's an interesting thing about the Ten Commandments. They're not all equal. They don't all stand alone. The last nine are dependent upon the first. Verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. The last nine really lose their power and meaning apart from the first. Because frankly, if there is no God, if there is no God, then who the heck is there to tell me that I shouldn't even murder? That I shouldn't cheat on my wife as I see fit? That I shouldn't lie and steal and do whatever I have to do to make my way to the top of society? But if that first is real and true, then all the rest come in line and make sense. Martin Luther said that if we were able to keep the first commandment, We wouldn't need the other nine. We wouldn't need the next nine commandments or the following four and a half chapters where God gives the sort of details of the law from the booming mountain of Sinai. That's because every problem you and I have, every problem you and I have, every problem, every sin problem, every marital issue, every relationship issue, every issue with, that you and I deal with when it comes to, whether it's laziness or greed or inability to sustain relationships with other people, every single problem you and I have is because we have fashioned, it's the second commandment, it's the first commandment and then the second commandment, you and I have fashioned something else to worship other than God that was not meant to be worshiped. So if I struggle with laziness, which I do, frankly, or, or you, might, you, might, you might not call it laziness. You might be like, I call it procrastination. I just can't be productive. Well, that's, I would say, well, I'm just lazy. I try to get better, but it's hard to sustain. Well, really, the problem with my laziness is the heart that I I've, I've have come to value my own personal uh, recreation above God, and I've worshiped the God of recreation or the God of rest. God's called us to rest, but not to worship rest. Or greed. Yeah, no, I'm just greedy. I, or maybe you just call it I'm stingy or I'm tight. You have trouble letting that dollar go, not just for purchases, but for other people. For the common good of people, or to the church, or whatever, I'm 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 tight. Well, the problem there that you can't get over is that uh, you're either worshiping the status that money gives you, or the security that you find whenever you look at your bank account and find that there's money there, more than God. Or you have an inability to sustain relationships. You can't stay with a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a spouse or friends for very long. and That could be for lots of different reasons. But all, every single one comes down to the fact that you and I are worshiping something other than God. If we were able to keep the one, we wouldn't need the rest. Galatians 3, 21 and 22. You can turn there if you like. Galatians three twenty one b through 22. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness wouldn't indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who who believe. God calls the people of Israel to Sinai. He says he has saved them, and he has chosen them to be his people. They respond. They say, we will do whatever you say to do. They said that in chapter 19. Then he issues his commands from Sinai, and then Moses comes out and sprinkles the people with blood, which is kind of weird to you and I, but the people would have known exactly what is going on. God's enacting a covenant with them. That's an agreement, a binding agreement between God and the people a covenant at this time in an ancient uh, ancient ancient world would often be enacted by we say we're going to we're going to be in a covenant with each other you're going to do this i'm going to do this and here's what we're going to do they would take a car- they would take a, a carcass cut it in half and lay it on either side and each person would walk through in between the two sides of the carcass as a symbol of saying so may it happen to me if i break this covenant and so God, as God is making a covenant with the people and Moses is sprinkling them the blood and they say, we will do whatever you say, whatever he says, they know that they're enacting a covenant with God and the, the risk of breaking the covenant, that perfect law, is death. Yet then it's interesting that even though he commands them, he gives them the commands, the, the Ten Commandments, right on the heel of it, he says, here's what you do You're going to break my laws. And here's what you're going to do. You're going to sacrifice. And he sits in this whole elaborate sacrificial system to pay for their debts, their sin debt in the covenant. And that's supposed to show them something, just as it's supposed to show you and I something. So along comes Jesus, the son of God. And he comes and he sacrifices himself he pays the penalty for breaking the covenant that the people made that you and I have broken and he does so in order to make us a people after God's own heart a new kind of people where no longer do we obey and and do we uh, sorry do we obey to be loved and accepted but rather we are loved and accepted in Christ Therefore, we obey. It actually was kind of that way from the beginning. Remember in chapter 19 where he tells them before he even gives them the law from the top of the mountain, he says that he had saved them on eagle's wings. Therefore, obey. It changes for us as believers the use of the law. Instead of seeing the law and saying, I'm going to try to keep this and knowing that we cannot, all of a sudden, for the believer who's been perfectly loved and accepted and forgiven in Christ, it changes the use of the law. So I read these 10 commandments and I read the rest of the law and the commands of God and it shows me the heart of the one who loved me and who I now love in return. That's what the Bible means when it says that he will write the law on our hearts, It means I no longer have to prove myself to God or to society or to my bosses or to my family or to my coworkers or even to myself any longer because I am content and overflowing with love and acceptance through Christ on my behalf. So therefore, I can move and live and act freely out of that unconditional love and acceptance that I found in Christ. That's how you and I are to use the law if we're a believer in Christ, to see the heart of the one who loved us. Wouldn't it be great if life looked like that? Wouldn't it be great if there was a people who God's law was written on their heart and they were realized that they were unconditionally loved and accepted in Christ and therefore they obeyed out of that love and acceptance, they didn't just not commit adultery and not steal and not murder and not be covetous and jealous, but they had a, such an overflowing of love and acceptance coming out of their heart that they could go above that and pour themselves out for the people around them, looking for nothing in return. That's what we're called to be as a church. If you aren't a believer in Christ this morning, this good and beautiful and high and simple law confronts you this morning. God has called you to this. I urge you to see the dif- dif- that distance in the mirror between who you should be and who you are and to confess to accept Christ's sacrifice on your behalf and to confess him as Lord. Place your faith and trust on him this morning and be reconciled to God. Have him write his law on your heart and make you a new creation this morning. Make you no longer just a person, but a part of his people. And then if you are a believer in Christ this morning, Church, I urge you and us to learn to live out of the overflow of the love and acceptance that Christ has put upon us by fulfilling the penalty of breaking the covenant and accepting us in Christ and God. Let's pray. as we prepare our hearts for communion. I pray that you would speak to us, that you would guide us, That there is any person here, and I pray there is, who, uh, whether they've grown up in church or around church or maybe far away from you, that they would uh, have their eyes opened, their heart awakened to the beauty that is found in Jesus Christ, to the beauty of the law that you've called us to live, but yet the impossibility of keeping it on our own. And I pray that you would. every person who is a believer in Christ this morning, that you would help us to learn to live out of the perfect, unconditional love and acceptance we found in you, and therefore to use the law to see what your heart is and obey out of unconditional love and acceptance rather than obeying for your love and acceptance. And Father, I pray that you would make us into a people whose law is written up your law is written on our hearts and live out of that overflow. And don't just uh, keep the very basics of the law, but live far above that by your grace and for our good. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today.